0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at CandlewoodArtsFestival.org.
1: The window to vote is closing in the recall election. Right now we're seeing about a 47% turnout the last time I checked. So turnout is pretty good. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. How organizations should prioritize mental health. If an employer can support mental
2: health regularly and on a consistent basis, you won't have people leaving, you know abruptly because they've all of a sudden burned out and need some time off
1: a look at how San Diego City Council districts may change, and a new book examines the Eddie Gallagher case. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
4: The eyes of the nation, this is not hyperbole, the eyes of the nation are on California. Because the decision you're about to make, isn't isn't just going to have a huge impact on California? It's going to reverberate around the nation, and quite frankly, not a joke, around the world.
1: That was President Joe Biden at a rally in Long Beach last night to drum up last-minute votes for a fellow Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom. Today is Election Day and the last day for voters to weigh in on whether or not to recall the governor from office and to choose his replacement should he be recalled. Joining us on this special Election Day is San Diego's Interim Registrar of Voters, Cynthia Paz. Cynthia, welcome. Welcome. Good morning. For voters who have not yet voted, how can they still get their ballot in?
5: Absolutely. If you still have your mail ballot in hand, act on that mail ballot, seal it inside your envelope, sign your name and date it, and you could drop it off at one of 131 mail ballot drop-off locations across the county, as well as 221 in-person voting locations, You can find these locations at sdvote.com. We have a locator tool so you can find a location close to
1: you. Is it too late to actually mail it in? There is still time.
5: We typically at this point tell folks to go ahead and drop it off at one of our our voting locations or drop-off locations. But if it is mailed today... The ballot must be, the envelope must be postmarked on or before Election Day and received by our office by the 21st of September. So they do have seven days, if postmarked timely, to make it to our office.
1: What time do the polls close today? The polls
5: close at 8 p.m. So if you want to vote in person, visit one of our 221 locations across the county, and you can vote in person up until 8 p.m. If you're in line at 8 p.m., you will get to vote. If you try joining the line after 8 p.m., it will be too late.
1: And what if they didn't get a ballot in the mail because they aren't yet registered to vote?
5: They can register at any of our 221 voting locations or at our office. They, they simply can come in, register to vote. It's called a conditional voter registration, and they will vote provisionally, meaning their ballot will be placed in an envelope. And once their registration is verified, that ballot will be removed from the envelope and added to the count.
1: How can voters track their ballot to ensure their vote has been counted?
5: If they're mailing it through the U.S. Postal Service or dropping off their mail ballot at a mail ballot drop-off location, they can use a tool called Where's My Ballot, and that will track their ballot and let them know when it's received by our office.
1: And we know it's still early in Election Day, but voting has been going on for several weeks. Turnout is always an important part of an election, uh, but especially during a special election. How has turnout been so far?
5: Right now, we're seeing about a 47% turnout the last time I checked. So turnout is pretty good. When you look at off-year elections, uh, we tend to see lower turnout. But this is pretty steady participation. We're seeing an increase in voters going to the polls today. Um, So ultimately, on October 14th, when we certify these results to the Secretary of State, we'll see what the
1: actual turnout is. Do you have any expectation of what that turnout might be overall at this point? At first, I was anticipating just looking at the
5: 2003 recall election, which was really the only election we could compare it to. We saw a 66% turnout in our county. I was anticipating maybe a 65 to 70% turnout. Maybe now I'm thinking 60 to 70% turnout. So, so we shall see uh, what that might end up being. We know that over 900,000 of our active registered voters have already cast their ballot. So today we'll be telling that, that folks are interested
1: in this election and they are turning out to vote. Even before the election has been decided, there are already voter fraud allegations surfacing. Uh, what steps are you taking to ensure the voting is, is fair and accurate?
5: As with every election, we take the security of our election um, very seriously. We have several chains of custody um, procedures in place. Uh, Prior to every election, we do an accuracy testing. It's called a logic and accuracy testing on all of our equipment. Um, After Election Day, we do a 1% manual tally to again verify the accuracy of our voting equipment and our scanning equipment. So we take security very seriously.
1: And when will we know the results of the election? We have until October 14th to
5: certify this election to the Secretary of State And we will take every bit of that time to make sure the election is accurate, completely canvassed and every eligible vote is in the count. We may see anywhere from 150,000 to 200,000 mail ballots dropped off today. So those will still need to be processed into into the count over the following weeks. Any conditional voter registrations will still need to be processed as well. And those are a, a bit more labor intensive. So it may be a couple weeks before, in our county at least, we'll see more of a resolution. But we will take until October 14th to certify these results to the Secretary of State.
1: I've been speaking with Interim San Diego Registrar of Voters, Cynthia Paz. Cynthia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
6: There's an interesting dispute taking place between San Diego County and the county's former chief medical officer, Dr. Nick Ifantidis. Known to many simply as Dr. Nick, he was a prominent county spokesman during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's Ifantidis.
1: But I must be transparent and admit that eventually the stress became overwhelming for me. I couldn't run from it. I began suffering from depression and overwhelming anxiety. I lost my ability to sleep. And so in that situation, I did what I believe any of us would tell our loved ones to do, to take a brief leave of absence,
6: After he took a medical leave of absence, Ifantides claims he was not allowed to resume his position with the county. Now in a lawsuit filed against the county, the doctor's attorney claims Ifantides was, quote, thrown away because of his mental health disability. The county has not commented on the pending litigation. We are often told that there's a stigma surrounding mental health problems that prevents many people from seeking treatment, but can that affect employment? What protections are in place for workers and what can workplaces do to help those experiencing mental health challenges? Joining me is Catherine Mathias. She's founder and CEO of Civility Partners. That's an HR consulting firm focusing on helping organizations create respectful and positive workplace cultures. And Catherine, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Since the pandemic, how would you say stress has shown up in the workplace?
2: Well, we've all been through a, a rough time, no doubt. And between figuring out a new way of work, figuring out a new way to parent, figuring out our relationships at home, it, when we're stuck there with our loved ones, there this has just been change after change after change, and change causes stress. And then you've got you know, your, the pressures of work, everybody needs to make sure that they can keep their paycheck and survive. So, I suspect that many of us have been holding back on our stress or letting it come through in order to just put our heads down and get through this. Um, so, I think this uh, pandemic and the stress it's created is not over. Once the pandemic is over, I think we'll still see stress as a big issue.
6: What procedures are generally in place for workers suffering from depression or stress?
2: Well, the law provides avenues for employees to take time off to take care of their mental health and take care of their stress. Um, Workers' Comp provides that opportunity. Um, FMLA provides that opportunity. So there is, uh, you know, the opportunity for employees to do what they need to do and take care of themselves.
6: Would you say that there's still a stigma attached for workers who tell their employers that they have mental health issues?
2: 100% absolutely. I think a silver lining here is that we've chipped away at that stigma a little bit with people being more willing to admit how they're feeling, but absolutely there is a stigma.
6: Now, without addressing the lawsuit that's been filed against the county, do you know of instances where people's employment has been threatened because of leaves of absence or treatment for mental health issues?
2: Absolutely. It's not that uncommon. Um, Employers are focused on the bottom line. Something I see a lot in my work is that, you know, the the business owner or CEO is focused on the bottom line. And and sometimes or a lot of times that's at the cost of employee mental health. And you, you hear employees are leaving because of burnout and the employer sort of ignores that fact and continues to push People hard continues to hold them accountable to high levels of work quality and and quantity. So from a business standpoint, you know, you're going to drive your employees to get whatever you can from them. But from a ethical and moral standpoint, you got to give your employees time to recover and function so that they can produce for you while they're there at work.
6: So from what you're saying, it sounds like a lot of organizations are not equipped to handle uh, a stressed out workforce.
2: I would say that's correct. Yeah, because what do you do if you have a team of 30 people, for example, and five of them are feeling the pressure and need time off? As a business owner or a CEO, that's hard to, to manage. So what I think employers miss is they often push employees hard, and then they need to take time off because of that versus if an employer can support mental health regularly and on a consistent basis, you won't have people leaving, you know, abruptly because
6: they've all of a sudden burned out and need some time off. If an employee can no longer handle his or her fair share of the workload because of mental health issues, it must be a difficult decision for the employer about what to do. That's right. Absolutely. It
2: is because you've got to balance your employees needs and, you know, you care about your employees, but you've also got a business to run and paychecks to pay. Um, So it is a a difficult place to be. And there isn't a a black and white answer case by case, you know, what's going on? What is that person's responsibility? Are there other people who can take on some of those responsibilities? So there's a lot of factors involved in figuring
6: out what to do how can the culture of a workplace become more accepting of people who are struggling with emotional and psychological problems? It's
2: a loaded question because organizational culture is much about nuances as opposed to policies. So for example, if your managers are working crazy hours, sending emails at four in the morning, working on weekends, working over PTO, and you're an employee at the receiving end of those emails, while the manager may be saying, I don't expect you to respond at four, that's just when I'm working. There's a message that comes with that though, that you have to work hard in order to survive here. So that's an example of a nuanced culture change that needs to happen where organizational leaders need to make it very clear to managers that they need to, you know, exemplify mental health and wellness and that they're working at reasonable hours instead of working, you know, 80 hours a week. Um so I think manager training is one big key to culture change here. Also managers can be more vulnerable for their employees, you know. Self-disclosure begets self-disclosure. So, if a manager were to say things like, "Gosh, I'm feeling stressed out. How are all of you doing?" Um, you know, it'll open the door for those types of conversations. But you know, culture has to come from the top. the The leader has to make it very clear that they're interested in the mental health of their employees and they're willing to work with employees in order to, you know, let them be healthy.
6: I've been speaking with Catherine Matthias. She's founder and CEO of Civility Partners. Catherine, thank you very much. Thank you. If you have an emergency or just want to talk about what help is available, you can call the San Diego County Mental Health Access and Crisis Line at 888-724-7240.
7: Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news events and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it.
0: This is Port of Entry.
7: The Parker Edison Project. Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcasts and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again.
6: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. How different will San Diego City Council districts be after redistricting? That's something the city's redistricting committee is working on using the latest census data and public input to decide. One change that's being put forward is that the UC San Diego campus and its environs be moved out of District 1 and into District 6. Advocates of the change say students have very little in common with the affluent and expensive community of La Jolla in District 1 and would be more at home in District 6, which includes University City and Mira Mesa. Now, one reporter who's been following the ongoing redistricting debates is Maya Shri Shrikrishnan of Voice of San Diego. And Maya, welcome.
3: Thank you for having me.
6: What's the fundamental reason some student advocates want out of District 1?
3: So there's a lot of reasons, but the... Primary reason is that students at UCSD have really been feeling the housing crunch um, that we all feel throughout the county, but um, they've been feeling it especially hard with the pandemic. Uh, They've really been struggling to live in areas near the university.
6: Why do they think they'd have more of a voice in either changing housing policies or being uh, having access to more affordable housing in District 6?
3: So right now, UCSD is part of District 1, which uh, contains some very affluent communities like La Jolla. Uh, And the students say that oftentimes what this results in is that the representative on the city council and the planning group are mostly focused on doing things for single family homeowners, which generally means trying to keep their housing values high. District 6 is a district with more businesses. It has a different socioeconomic uh, picture than District 1. And so people, um, the students in particular, feel that they would have more in common with residents of District 6 and that their city council representative, if they were a part of District 6, would be more focused on things like creating more affordable housing in their region.
6: And there's also a demographic angle to the desire to change districts. Tell us about that.
3: So District 6, uh, when it was formed in 2011, became the city's Asian Empowerment District, and it had a high enough proportion of Asian residents that they would have a significant say in who was elected. Um, The UCSD student body is really diverse, uh, especially compared to District 1, and it includes a lot of Asian and Asian American students. So if UCSD and some of the surrounding areas like Sereno Valley, um, University City, uh, were added to District 6, it would actually increase the percentage of Asians in that community um, from I think what one of the maps presented recently showed was that it could raise it to about 42% of the entire population of that District 6 as it was drawn. Um, And right now, District 6 as it currently is, has about 35% of the population um, is Asian. This
6: debate over where UC San Diego should be placed is only one of several redistricting debates that you've been covering. One that involves San Diego's Vietnamese community finds that community dispersed over four city council districts right now, doesn't it?
3: So um, the city's Vietnamese community has Grown significantly. It's more than doubled uh, since the last round of redistricting a decade ago. Um, But as you mentioned, right now it's split into multiple city council districts. Uh, So there are several different solutions that various leaders in the community have put forward. Um, To be honest, it probably will be impossible to bring all of the Vietnamese community into one district because districts need to be geographically contiguous and connected. And there's a bulk of the community in today's um, District 6. It's near Mesa. There's also some in Linda Vista. And then there's also some on sort of the eastern side of the city uh, in City Heights and in some parts of today's District 4. Some of the solutions have really focused on um, around District 6, uh, potentially bringing Linda Vista, which has a really high number of um, Vietnamese residents into District six, which again, is the current like Asian empowerment district.
6: On the flip side, though, you reported on some Asian American residents of Park Village and Rancho Penasquitos who want to be taken out of district six and returned with the rest of Penasquitos. Why is that?
3: Yeah. So this is one of the most interesting things about the redistricting process is that, um, You know, all of us have multiple identities. uh, And when it comes to what community we live in, um, what city council district we want to be in, who we want to vote with, who we want to represent us, um, different identities can take priority over others. And in this case, Park Village is a part of Rancho Penasquitos that was split off from the rest of Rancho Penasquitos back in 2011 to be added to District 6. The community is um, very diverse, has a lot of Asian families, and so it helped create that Asian Empowerment District um, in today's District 6. But a lot of the residents, um, even a lot of the Asian and Asian-American residents, really wanted to remain a part of Rancho Penasquitos, and they prioritized that identity over their identity as Asian-Americans when it came to how they wanted to be represented. And they felt and continue to feel today that they have more in common when it comes to the issues that they want the city to deal with um, with the rest of Rancho Penasquitos rather than some of the communities in District 6.
6: Now, right now the redistricting committee is hearing from planning associations all over the city. Do we have any idea when the new districts will be announced?
3: So this redistricting process has been um, very different from past ones in terms of the timeline. We got the census data very late uh, and the commission is still going through public hearings and hasn't actually started drawing its map or anything like that. Um, As of now, the Districts need to be final um, by December. Uh, so the redistricting commission probably in the next couple of months will put out some maps and then get feedback from the community on those maps before it actually comes out with the final maps.
6: I've been speaking with reporter Maya Shri Krishnan, a voice of San Diego. Maya, thank you.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: In California, the number of people dying from methamphetamine and cocaine overdoses now outnumbers deaths from fentanyl. Health officials are desperate for more treatment options for stimulant addiction. And right now, the governor is considering a bill that would direct the state to pay drug users not to use drugs. KQED's health correspondent, April Dimboski explains. When Billy Lemon was trying to kick his methamphetamine addiction, he went to a drug
8: treatment center in San Francisco three times a week and peed in a cup. If it tested negative for meth, he got paid $7.
0: And for somebody who had not had any legitimate money without committing felonies, that seemed like a cool thing.
8: The treatment is called contingency management, and it incentivizes drug users with money or gift cards to stay off drugs. People can earn up to three or $400 over the course of three months. For Lemon, it was about more than just the money. It was about being told, good job.
0: It was the first opportunity where I was like, I have self-worth still. It, it's buried. This person sees it and is willing to give me $7 just to take care of myself. That was very motivating.
8: Studies show contingency management works. In San Francisco, 63% of participants stopped using meth entirely, and another 19% reduced their use. The incentives aim to rewire the brain's reward system, so the person seeks the money or gift card to get a dopamine release instead of meth or coke.
0: And you're like, oh, 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 I can feel good without the daily use of that substance. Oh, I, maybe I should, let me try and go one more week. And then all of a sudden you're at 90 days and you've actually, you've made a change.
8: The treatment is controversial. Critics have scoffed at the idea of paying drug users not to use drugs, calling it unethical or a bribe. Most insurers don't cover it. State Medicaid programs fear they'll be violating federal rules if they offer it. The feds forbid any kind of financial inducement as a protection against fraud and waste so patients can't be lured into unnecessary services. But a California state bill now on the governor's desk would change that. State Senator Scott Weiner is the
3: author. We need to embrace this proven, effective approach, make it clearly legal, and start reimbursing for it.
8: Weiner was surprised the bill passed with so much bipartisan support.
3: The Republicans love it. which I don't think they would, but they actually like it because there's an abstinence component to it, right? It's like, we pay you money and you abstain from using it.
8: The state's Department of Healthcare Services is also on board. This summer, it asked federal regulators for permission to offer contingency management through the state Medicaid program, and the Biden administration appears poised to grant it. Dr. Kelly Pfeiffer is the department's deputy director of behavioral health. Besides California's rising death toll from meth and cocaine, she says these drugs have catastrophic effects on the living. High stimulant use means a lot of people involved in the criminal justice system. Instead of treatment, it means foster care placements instead of children staying with families. It leads to dental problems, lung problems, and heart problems. Which are obviously not only devastating to the person and the family, but very expensive for our health care system. Unlike opioids, there are no FDA-approved medication therapies for stimulant addiction. Making contingency management more widely available would cost the state less than $180,000 a year. And Pfeiffer says it will make more people willing to seek treatment. Because people will see success
7: stories. They'll see friends and family getting treatment and getting help and, and getting better.
8: So far, incentive treatment programs have been ad hoc and privately funded. If the governor signs the bill and the feds give their approval, the state could start offering contingency management across California as soon as January. That was KQED
1: health correspondent April Dimboski.
6: The fall semester is bringing new opportunities for students on the Chula Vista campus of Southwestern College. A modern $66 million performing arts center is now open. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez tells us more about its impact on the South Bay and the next generation of artists. There we go.
1: There we go.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Sarah Marie White makes every movement with meaning. She's a dancer, learning how to express her artistic talent and develop tenacity.
9: It's a huge adrenaline rush. You're like me, and you just, like, you really crave that, like, attention, and you, like, you feed off the audience. It's it's an unreal feeling, if I'm being honest. It's
4: amazing. Sarah is one of the first students to take classes at the new 41,000-square-foot Performing Arts Center on the campus of Southwestern College. The brand-new complex is state-of-the-art. Veteran dance professor Mary Jo Horvath is determined to use her modern classroom studio to train and cultivate the distinct and diverse talent coming from the South Bay community. Some are coming in with
1: folklorical training, some are coming in with Polynesian training, belly dance, Latin. And you're going to have those same people in a ballet class or a tap class or a musical theater
7: class.
0: This is the large auditorium which will primarily be used for music concerts, but it will also be used for dance concerts and also occasionally for theater performances.
4: Mike Buckley is the Southwestern Theater Arts Technical Director. He says the Performing Arts Center is not just for learning, it's for entertaining too. The school will mount its student productions in the complex, scheduled alongside events produced by professional arts organizations and community groups. Negotiations are underway with the San Diego Opera. And the San Diego Symphony to lease the space in the future. The complex cost $66 million to design and build. All of it was paid with bond money approved by local voters in November 2016. And we really thank the voters of Chula Vista who saw the vision for what
0: could happen at Southwestern College if they just injected some funds here.
4: The corner of the campus where the Performing Arts Center sits was an empty lot for 50 years. Generations of children from the South Bay would come at Christmas time to pick a tree with their family or enjoy the pumpkin patch at Halloween. Now the corner offers much more than just fun, but opportunity like never before. Freshman Taylor Wiggins wrote a monologue for Professor Ruff Yeager's Acting 1 class. She wants to be an actress or playwright someday.
6: I love you, and I'm trying to make this work, but you make it so difficult. You don't want to listen to a
8: word I say. You shut me out.
4: Taylor says she's grateful for her education and the new and improved resources Southwestern has to offer her and other students of color. 90% of the student population comes from historically minority and marginalized communities. Almost 70% of them are Hispanic. Edwin Anthony Rodriguez is one of them. He wants to be a choreographer and maybe someday start his own dance studio. This is where the dream begins for him. I have a lot of Mexican background, and I really appreciate it. I love to hone my heritage. That's why I'm also a Latin dancer, so I can really get in touch with my roots. Professor Horvath has spent 31 years on the Southwestern faculty, teaching and creating a community of next-generation dancers. She provides the education and encouragement that often takes her students much farther than a stage.
1: I think dance kind of gives them... uh a new outlook on life. Uh, They start to kind of come out of their shell a little bit as they gain uh, technique and uh, as they perfect their craft.
4: Just a few weeks into the fall semester, a community multi-million dollar investment is already yielding a profit of potential. M.G. Perez, KPBS News.
1: In 2018, U.S. Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher was court-martialed for a number of shocking crimes he was accused of committing while leading an elite commando unit in Iraq. Despite appalling accusations from members of his own unit, Gallagher was ultimately only convicted of posing for a photograph with the corpse of an enemy combatant. His case and the ensuing political discord that surrounded it continues to spark debate about U.S. military conduct during war and how American soldiers are held accountable for their actions. In his new book, Alpha, Eddie Gallagher and the War for the Soul of the Navy Seal, New York Times military correspondent David Phillips recounts the experiences of Gallagher's unit as well as the ensuing investigation of Gallagher's actions and the controversy of his verdict. David Phillips joins us now. David, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. So let's start with the title. What made you want to frame this story as a battle for the soul of the Navy SEAL?
0: Well, what I realized when I started looking into this crime is that it wasn't much of a whodunit. There was a lot of evidence that Eddie Gallagher had indeed killed this enemy combatant, including his own words and texts that he sent to friends. But there was something much more interesting. There was sort of a cultural whodunit because it seemed like Eddie Gallagher's behavior was very much a learned behavior of of a subculture in the SEALs. And there was an internal clash in the SEAL teams between people who were trying to operate with the rules of the law of war. And there were other people that saw that as naive and that, you know, the most elite unconventional forces had to do things that were a little bit in the shadows and the law sometimes
1: got in the way the military's prosecution of Gallagher's case was riddled with errors. Is that also part of the struggle for the soul of the military? Well, I think
0: it prevented the Navy SEALs and and us as a nation from really taking honest stock of what happened and and what lessons can be learned. So, in in Eddie Gallagher's case, he was charged with murdering a prisoner and and shooting at civilians, old men, women, children, and he was acquitted, as you noted, of almost everything. But what we found that was that there were several things that might have kept a a really reliable verdict from being reached, including that on the jury, there was a SEAL who knew Eddie Gallagher personally and lied about it to uh, the Navy prosecutors and the judge.
1: You write about one of the men that Gallagher served with, Craig Miller. In many ways, he was sort of a whistleblower of this whole case. What role did he play in noticing some of the red flags of Gallagher's behavior and ultimately in alerting superiors to his conduct?
0: Craig Miller who by the way right now is serving as an active duty SEAL chief in Coronado. He was Eddie Gallagher's right man, hand man and and his closest ally in the platoon. And step by step he he came to believe that his leader, his chief had really gone mad and he had to do something about it. Now you you call him a whistleblower. I think that all of these guys were really reluctant to say anything that there was extreme pressure within the SEAL teams to protect the tribe, to keep news like this within the family, to be loyal to your brothers that you went to war with. But ultimately what he was forced to decide is, am I doing more harm? Am I betraying my brothers more by staying silent? And this was not an easy decision to make. But he and several other members of the platoon eventually decided that they came to see Eddie Gallagher and, and, and his subculture as a cancer that if they didn't cut it out of the seals, no matter how painful was going to be potentially really bad news.
1: And your book deals a lot with how well regarded Gallagher was by many of his peers, something that is made even more shocking by the seriousness of what he was accused of. How do you think Gallagher is regarded by people within the military?
0: Boy, that you know, there's millions of people within the military, and I'm sure there's as many opinions. But certainly within the SEAL teams, he was seen as as you know what they call a good dude. That, that's sort of their seal of approval. Uh, a reliable operator, an experienced guy, a guy who would be good to have by your side. And when the uh, SEALs that served under him in Alpha Platoon learned that he was going to be their leader, they were excited because he had an excellent reputation and they thought that he would be a ticket to success. And in some ways he was, he got them a very coveted assignment to go to Mosul to fight ISIS. But when they got there, they realized that his reputation hid something much darker, that he was going to do things you know, well beyond what they were supposed to be doing and, and things that had nothing to do with the mission.
1: And the death of one person is not all he was accused of. Correct?
0: Literally, his his uh, platoon doesn't really know how many people he killed because of the way it happened. According to them, he fired a lot at at civilians out in the city, and and how many of them were killed, they don't know. But there were stories that individual eyewitnesses told of him shooting at unarmed old men, or groups of school age girls, or families going to get water at the river. They they heard him boast about this stuff, and and keep a mounting count of the people that he had killed.
1: Gallagher's conviction was ultimately overturned by President Trump. What message did that send about this case and how the actions of military uh, personnel are perceived?
0: I think that the Navy leadership was extremely troubled. Um, They actually wanted to throw Eddie Gallagher out of the Navy, um, essentially fire him after this because they thought that, that he had done so many bad things beyond just what he was charged with criminally. And so to have a president, in their view, politicize what is, you know, a matter of good order and discipline was really a problem because what happens when the next guy gets accused? Does he learn the lesson that, hey, if you go on Fox News and get the president's attention, you can essentially get an out? I think that's their concern. Eddie Gallagher's case is the only one like this in the sense that he is, to my knowledge, the only SEAL. Uh, ever to be charged with murder in a combat zone. But in my reporting of this, what I found over and over and over is it was almost like walking down a long corridor where there were rooms off to to either side that you could kind of look in when passing, where there seemed to be other things, including things from Eddie Gallagher's other deployments to places like Afghanistan. Uh, There seemed to be a culture that celebrated law breaking and celebrated bloodshed. Now, I do not want to suggest that this is the majority of SEALs at all. I mean, what this book tells is the story of a bunch of really upstanding guys who did the right thing, even though it was super tough. But uh, I think there's a persistent subculture that doesn't really care about the rules and, and thinks that are above them.
1: I've been speaking with author and New York Times military correspondent David Phillips. David, thank you very much for joining us.
0: My pleasure. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision-makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today.
6: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinman. One marine researcher says they are among the most beautiful things you can see in the ocean. And they're friendly. Scientists have been studying a small group of East Pacific green sea turtles who seem to have found an ocean home off La Jolla shores. Finding the four turtles has surprised biologists because the water is colder here than in the tropics these creatures usually prefer and because of the way they've been behaving with divers. The turtles seem to like hanging out with humans. Last spring, I spoke with biologist Megan Hanna, an environmental analyst for the Navy. Her research into the La Jolla turtles was published in the journal Frontiers in Marine Science. For those among us who have never seen an East Pacific Green Sea turtle, can you tell us what makes them different from the average turtle?
9: Typically, I think what people are used to seeing are the um, Hawaiian greens, which have a carapace, which is their shell that is more caramel in color, whereas the East Pacific green turtles have a shell that's a little bit darker olive, um, almost a black color, and their plaster on the underside of their belly is going to be typically a little bit more yellow or gray.
6: And how big are they?
9: Well, shockingly enough, in um, general... In fact, in San Diego Bay, we have some that are almost four feet, ranging from like 300 to 400 pounds at the largest. And then I'd say in La Jolla, they were probably closer to about two and a half to three and a half feet,
6: much smaller. And there's some sort of debate about how long they live. Everybody knows they are long-lived creatures, but can they make it up to 100 years
9: If you ask my boss, Dr. Jeffrey Semenoff, I think he would say yes, about 90 to 100 years. I think we have documentation of at least 70 years so far, but we haven't been able to document them living for much longer than we've been studying them for about 20, 30 years at least.
6: There's some speculation that they may outlive some of the researchers trying to study them.
9: I would not be surprised at all.
6: (laughs) (laughs) So where are these turtles usually found? I know you just said there were some in San Diego Bay, but where do they usually make their homes?
9: So traditionally, these East Pacific greens have nesting beaches that are off mainland Mexico and the coast of Southern Baja, California, or islands just off of Baja, California. And what they do is they basically start nesting and then make their way up the coast of Baja California in Mexico and settle down in areas over there for foraging or off the coast of Southern California in places like San Diego Bay, La Jolla now and even as far north as um, Long Beach.
6: Now the La Jolla turtles seem to have adapted to humans in a way that the San Diego Bay turtles haven't. Can you tell us about that?
9: Yeah, I think La Jolla presents a very different and unique opportunity and its in that it's an area where uh, there's a lot of tourism and the water's a little bit more clear, so people can snorkel and actually see the reef and the wildlife there. Whereas in San Diego Bay, the water isn't as clear and there's not exactly a lot of tourism. So I think that the turtles in La Jolla have had the opportunity to be around recreational divers, snorkelers, um, kayakers, and have had an opportunity to kind of acclimate to that a little bit.
6: Now, swimming with these turtles is described as really an incredible experience. They sort of float and glide beside you. Have you been in the water with them?
9: Yes, of course. The photographers that actually helped out with the Citizen Science Project helped show me around and take photographs with them. And We do always make sure that we do our best to keep our distance and not alter their behavior in any way, but it truly is an extraordinary experience.
6: Why is it so extraordinary?
9: I think because they have somewhat of a calm nature. So just watching them move about with the current in the surf grass. Some people call them little surfers (laughs) when they see them over there. And just watching them forage so peacefully is really awesome.
6: Now, the water at La Jolla Shores and even in San Diego Bay is cooler than, as you were saying, the traditional nesting grounds for these animals. How does the cooler water affect the turtles?
9: Cooler water causes turtles to go into a state of what we would call brumation in which they somewhat slow down their metabolism and try to hunker down sometimes under like rock shelves or in the um, substrate that they are present in. And this is just a way for them to lower their metabolism, save up their calories and kind of conserve the energy that they have and stay a little bit warmer.
6: What does this migration northward tell us about these turtles and about conservation efforts?
9: We definitely think that the migration northwards we think is caused by years of successful conservation efforts um, in southern Mexico, which includes um, reduced poaching and illegal hunting and protection of nesting beaches. We think this has caused the East Pacific population, and we know it has caused them to grow in numbers, and we think that their population is now expanding out of regions that we traditionally saw them in into regions further north as their numbers increase.
6: And it is important for people to know that the East Pacific green sea turtle is a protected species. So if you do see one swimming with you, what should you avoid doing?
9: Essentially, you should definitely avoid altering its behavior in any kind. Um, So try to keep a distance. Definitely do not touch or chase the turtle, but it is a very cool experience. So try to relax and just watch from a distance and enjoy.
6: Can you ever see these turtles just hanging out on the beach?
9: They do not nest on beaches here. So they are just foraging. So the best way to see them is um, over the reef shelf, where there's a lot of red algae.
6: Okay, then. So from what I understand, there are only four in the group now. Do you expect the numbers of these turtles in La Jolla to increase?
9: I do. We actually had a recent sighting about a month or two ago, And I'm hoping that this turtle is not just transient and that it decides to uh, make La Jolla its home as well. But with conditions being a little bit poor lately for diving and snorkeling, we aren't quite sure if the turtle has stuck around. But the last recruit was in 2019. So hopefully they will be increasing in numbers over the years.
6: That was biologist Megan Hanna.